Now, a major subject or two in chapter 33 has to do with Esau's reconciliation to Jacob. These two brothers who were at odds and with the threat of death, in Jacob's case, now they are reconciled. From chapter 33, there are many interpreters who conclude that Esau became a believer. Esau was saved. Esau was redeemed by the time chapter 33 takes place and for the rest of his life. So that Esau is in heaven. We will see Esau in heaven. He received eternal life. He was saved by Christ. Esau was. They conclude from this chapter. This is one of the main chapters and main reasons why they think he was redeemed. It's certainly true that he was reconciled. There's no doubt about that. But does the scripture actually teach that he was reconciled to God for his salvation or not? And we'll see that the scripture teaches that he was not. The the failure of those who say Esau was saved is in thinking that because there is harmony between conflicting parties, therefore it must mean that both parties are right in the sight of God. They are both redeemed, when that is not necessarily so. There can be harmony between two parties when one party is saved and another is unsaved. That's one assumption that they have which is false. Because there's reconciliation, therefore there must be redemption on both sides. That's false. Another thing that they do is that they fail to give proper attention and proper interpretation to passages of Scripture that say Esau was not saved. Esau was condemned. Esau was a reprobate, a wicked man. They don't give those passages due attention or accurate attention. They don't do that. Let's seek to show both points. One point is that Esau was never redeemed. And then the other point is we could have some harmony, some resolution of conflict without necessarily having salvation from the two parties who are in conflict. One party might have salvation and the other party might not. Okay, so first, on the fact that Esau was not saved based on a careful reading of Scripture. Careful, plain reading of the text in its historical context without a bias. Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. Malachi 1, 1 to 5. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, How have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, We have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down and men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. And your eyes will see this and you will say, may the Lord be magnified beyond the border 
of Israel. It says in verse 2, Was not Esau Jacob's brother? We're talking about the patriarchs, the two men, the two brothers. The answer is yes. Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. God loved Jacob, therefore he was good to Jacob's descendants. Good in even the spiritual way because he gave them access to salvation by the word of God. Not that they were all saved, but they had access to salvation. In Esau's case, it says, I have hated Esau. He loved Jacob, the patriarch, but he hated Esau, the patriarch, Love and hate. This hate cannot be mitigated hate. It cannot be comparative hate, as some want to translate it. Armenian theology wants to translate and understand this context as a kind of softened hate or a lesser love. They want to say that. But we can't do that in verse 3 because in verses 3 to 5, Esau is hated to the extent that his, his inheritance is completely destroyed. Right. Even when the remnant of those people living in Edom or in the surrounding nations, they want to return to their native land to rebuild it, God says, I'm not going to let it happen. He's going to continue to destroy it. Not only that, verse 4 Esau's territory is called the wicked territory. They deserve their destruction because they are wicked people. And God's anger towards Esau and his descendants is forever. It says, toward whom the Lord is indignant or angry forever. Therefore, there's no redemption. Some interpreters from this passage say, we're only talking about Esau as a nation and Israel as a nation, we're not talking about the individuals, the patriarchs, Jacob and Esau. However, in verse 3, it says, I have hated Esau and I have made his mountains a desolation. First, he hates Esau and Esau's territory where his descendants live, God made it a desolation. Which means God's hatred is not only toward Esau, but it's also toward his descendants. Furthermore, verse 4, Though Edom says, the nation says, We have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, They may build, but I will tear down, and men will call them. Not just Esau, but Esau's descendants. Call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. You see how in verses 3 to 4, not only Esau the individual, the man, the patriarch, is named, but also his descendants are named. And both of them, Esau and his descendants, are the objects of God's wrath. God's punishment because of their wickedness. This passage in Malachi is not only addressing the nation. It's addressing both the individual 
and the nation. This is important because it will vindicate the apostolic interpretation of Romans 9, 11 to 13. Romans 9, 11 to 13. This chapter is a chapter on God's predestination or election of individuals for salvation, for personal salvation. This chapter is not an exposition on God choosing the nation of Israel to receive the word of God and to have the Christ be born in the nation of Israel. That's not the subject matter of this chapter. The subject matter of this chapter is personal salvation, which the Apostle Paul made very clear in verse 3, chapter 9, verse 3. I could wish that I myself were accursed, accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He's talking about his own personal salvation. He could wish that he were accursed. Individual salvation. Further, in verses 30 to 33, at the end of the chapter, he speaks of attaining to righteousness. Verse 30, What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. This righteousness by faith. Throughout the letter to the Romans, he's been describing by grace through faith in Christ. That's the only way to obtain righteousness for eternal redemption. That's the only way. And there's many more indications in the middle of the chapter. And we pick it up at verse 11. He's talking about individuals giving examples of those who were saved and those who were lost. Abraham had two sons. Isaac saved, Ishmael lost. Abraham also had two wives. Sarah saved, Hagar lost. Then Isaac and Rebekah. They have twins, Isaac and Rebekah. One man, one woman. The one woman, Rebekah, has twins coming from the same womb, right? And these two have different destinies. Notice in verse, we'll start at verse 10. And not only this, but there was also Rebekah. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or evil, in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. The twins are in the womb. Remember, they were struggling in the womb. And the answer to her prayer when they were struggling in the womb, Rebecca's prayer in Genesis 25, 19 to 26, there Rebecca is told the older will serve the younger. She understood and Isaac understood that to be a reference to the fact that Jacob would be saved, but Esau would be lost. And he corroborates that interpretation of Genesis 25:23 with a quote from Malachi 1, 2 to 3. Verse 13 says, Just as it is written, 
Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. The Apostle Paul is speaking about Jacob the patriarch being loved and Esau the patriarch being hated as individuals. Loved unto salvation and hated unto condemnation. That's his point in this chapter regarding Esau. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, and we begin at 14. 12, 14. Pursue peace with all and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. In the book of Hebrews, there are several passages that warn us from rejecting the truth. They warn us, right? If we know the truth, don't walk away from it. Don't re- reject it. And that's why he says in 14, pursue peace with all, which is what we ought to be doing, right? And sanctification or holiness. Otherwise, we won't see the Lord. Then he describes somebody who did not reach that. Right. That ideal, that goal of verse 14. In 15, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Which means it could happen. Coming short of the grace of God so that you not see the Lord. Right? And you not have peace. You not have sanctification. That no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. So it could happen to others than the illustration. It did happen to one. The illustration is Esau. He's called an immoral and godless person. Immoral and godless. Esau. If Esau was saved, why would he call him that? He's calling him that as an example of someone who came short of the grace of God. That's why he's called immoral and godless. Then the example He sold his own birthright for a single meal, one event in his life, and then another one in verse 17. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. He wanted the blessing of his father Isaac, but he didn't want repentance. He wanted the outcome, he wanted the blessing, But he didn't want to repent at all. He even cried about it. But he didn't repent. Is Esau saved in Scripture? Not according to Malachi, not according to Paul in Romans 9, and not according to the Apostle here in Hebrews chapter 12. Yes? So you're saying immoral, unrighteous people aren't saved? Yes, Yes, I'm saying immoral, unrighteous, godless people are not saved. Even if they say they are? Even if they say they are. They've been to false creed? 
Even if they've been to Falls Creek. Wow. Yes. Yes. Um, but just wait to throw eggs and tomatoes at me, okay? And, um, yeah, and I would say, do you not know? Um, first, first Corinthians 6, First Corinthians 6, 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. We might have been that way, but we can't remain that way. We have to be, we have to confess and forsake our sin. This establishes the fact that if we correctly and accurately read the rest of Scripture, which comments on Esau, there's no way to come to the conclusion that Esau was and is saved. There's no way to come to that conclusion. Only if you ignore Scripture. Now, the other aspect to this is this reconciliation of Jacob and Esau. They were reconciled as brothers, so that there wasn't any conflict between them anymore during their life. Well, does reconciliation necessitate that both conflicting parties, warring parties, are on the same page in the sight of God? The answer is no. It does not necessitate that. It would be a false conclusion to conclude that way. Why do we say that? Genesis 32, 9 to 12. Genesis 32, 9 to 12. In this case, Jacob is promised by God in Genesis 32, 9 to 12, that God will give him safety and he will protect him from Esau. God is working to help Jacob. Verse 11, Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me, the mothers with the children. God's answer, verse 12, For you said, or even his promise before this prayer, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Well, this is actually fulfilled. Based on this, it has to be that there must be some kind of abatement of Esau's anger. There has to be some of that going on for Jacob to be able to return to Canaan and to live safely for the rest of his life, for his descendants to prosper, right? Look at examples of this throughout Scripture. Examples of God helping the righteous in the face of their enemies, even though their enemies are still unredeemed, whether they are idolaters or whatever they are, they're unredeemed, yet they don't cause trouble to the people of God because God intervenes to make sure it doesn't happen. Genesis 35.5. Genesis 35.5. As they journeyed, there was a great terror upon the cities which were around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. 
There was a great terror. It actually could be, and ought to be translated, a terror of God. A terror of God, or dread of God, that fell upon the cities which were around Jacob, so that none of Jacob's enemies dared to attack Jacob. A terror of God, according to the literal rendition of that verse. Other examples of this. Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24. Remember that there was a false prophet, a sorcerer named Balaam, who was hired by the Moabite and Midianite kings to curse Israel in the wilderness in the time of Moses. We could read this in Genesis, uh, in Numbers, excuse me, Numbers 22 to 25. Numbers 22 to 25 about this Balaam and what he attempted to do. But he wanted to curse Israel, but God made him bless Israel, which brought great uh, consternation to the kings who hired him because they wanted a curse. But a curse would never come out of Balaam's mouth. Though he was an unbeliever, a curse never came out of his mouth. Joshua 24.10 explains why. Actually, even Numbers 22-25 to explains why. But if we were to summarize it in one verse, and even one little word, one three-letter word, Joshua 24.10, But I was not willing to listen to Balaam, So he had to bless you, and I delivered you from his hand. He had to bless you. Had to. Why did he have to do that? Because God made him do it. He was an unbeliever, but the Spirit of God overcame him, Numbers 24, 2. And so whenever the Spirit of God controlled the mouth of Balaam, Balaam had to pronounce a blessing instead of a curse. And he had to do it according to Joshua 24.10. So he had to bless you. God changed the circumstances by a sorcerer, a false prophet, by the mouth of a false prophet. Let's further read in 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles 14. We'll see these examples in 2 Chronicles to further illustrate this point. 2 Chronicles 14. We have a good king reigning over Judah. And in 14 verse 6. Let's begin at verse 5. 2 Chronicles 14.5. He also removed the high places and the incense altars from all the cities of Judah. And the kingdom was undisturbed under him. And he built fortified cities in Judah since the land was undisturbed. And there was no one at war with him during those years because the Lord had given him rest. The land is undisturbed. No foreigners attacking, causing any trouble or warfare because the Lord had given him rest. Chapter 17, 2 Chronicles 17 Verse 10, another good king is in power in Judah. 17.10, Now the dread of the Lord was on all the kingdoms of the lands which were around Judah, 
so that they did not make war against Jehoshaphat. The dread of the Lord's on them, therefore they don't make war against Jehoshaphat. Chapter 20, 2 Chronicles 20, 29. And the dread of God was on all the kingdoms of the lands when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. So there's peace in the days of the good king, Jehoshaphat. Then 2 Chronicles 36. 2 Chronicles 36. 36, 20 to 23. 2 Chronicles 36, 20. And those who had escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon, and they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him, and let him go up. What does it say in verse 22? Why is it that Cyrus, king of Persia, an idolatrous king, a pagan king, does something favorable to the people of God. It says the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. To be favorable to the people of Judah. To return to build their city, to build their temple, and to build their wall. He allows them to return. All by the powerful work of God in the lives of individuals, nations, kings, doesn't matter who they are. They are all unbelievers. They might even be believers, but in a few cases, whenever there is reconciliation, it's God causing it to happen in these cases here. It says in Proverbs sixteen seven, when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Isn't that what happened in Second Chronicles? We have in the case, at least in the case of King Asa and Jehoshaphat, that they were practicing righteousness, therefore God left their nation undisturbed from foreign enemies. The dread of God was on them so that they did not dare to do anything. In fact, they were seeking for ways to make sure there was no warfare between Israel and them which means that they would have had some level of an alliance or some level of of a desire for harmony and peace between the nations. And this fact is what false interpreters of Esau do not regard. They don't understand this very truth of Scripture. They assume falsely that because there's reconciliation between Esau and Jacob, therefore Esau is saved. 
we might ask, why did they want to do that? The reason is, they want as many people going to heaven as possible, if not everybody. Right. If Pharaoh is saved, it, well, firstly, if Esau is saved in Romans 9, then also Pharaoh is saved because he's also mentioned in Romans 9. And if Pharaoh is saved in Romans 9, then it would mean that Ishmael and Hagar are saved in Romans 9. And if those are saved, then Judas Iscariot was saved. And not only Judas Iscariot, but a lot of other people that we have demonized over the years should not really be demonized, whether in the Bible or outside of the Bible. Yes, and even in modern history, they want to believe that mass murderers like Hitler and Stalin, uh, Mao Zedong and others are saved. That they are saved. Fidel Castro, yes, Hugo Chavez, that they're all saved. They're all going to heaven. They want to believe that. And they want to believe it because they don't want to believe in the true gospel to repent of sin and to live a holy life. And if they don't want to live a holy life, they don't want to expect others to live a holy life. If they don't have to live a holy life, then I don't have to live a holy life. We're all saved. And the dirty little secret is, if you press them on the matter, they also believe that all demons and Satan himself is saved. If they have thought about it and you press them on the matter, they will eventually admit to you that Satan himself is saved. Only a loving God who gives us free will, since God is loving and he gives us free will, and he doesn't want to punish anybody, it breaks his heart to punish anybody. Therefore, everyone, including evil spirits, they're all saved. That's what they really believe. They really want to get to that point. But if we're being honest with Scripture, honest with the truth, that can't be the case. Amen. So let's not love our sin so much that we cause our sin to blind us and to distort the true meaning, correct meaning of Scripture. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.